In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. I have a couple of things. So first, the thing that I wanted to talk about is I was listening to Sinisterhood, as I have been doing a lot, and randomly, they brought up the movie Sliding Doors, which we've talked about either on this podcast or the other podcast a lot. I think both. I think both. (laughs) I kind of think it, I think it's more the other one because of the alternate worlds. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I was shocked because both you and I have talked about how we really like that movie. And Christy on Sinisterhood was saying she was making her husband watch it because she remembered it being a really good movie. And then it was on and she was like, oh, I'm I'm sorry. This is terrible. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because I haven't seen it since it first came out. I know. It, it probably has been at least 15, if not 20 years since I've seen it. So oh, wow. I'm I, now I'm really curious if it actually is terrible. <laughs> and I've been false remembering all this time. It could be because that was the the era of um, we. So I grew up in a very conservative Christian household, as I've probably uh-huh. mentioned a few times. And part of that life was my dad desperately trying to keep us as far away from secular media as po- as possible. <laughs> Mm, yeah unsuccessfully a lot of the time but you know he he <laughs> definitely had his the fear of god in me <laughs> even yeah. when i was alone yeah. i'm like watching beavis and butthead and being like this is really 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 bad i'm going immediately to hell um, <laughs> but the the reason oh, beavis I, and butthead that's I know, right because i just was thinking of like the things i'd watched that gave me like bad feelings um yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. i feel like i'm on like a million offshoots but the the point of it is is that that was when I would watch movies. The only um, paid for channel, I guess, that we had at the time was Stars, Stars and Encore. And they were sort of newer. So we, we would get like all these free trials of them all the time. And so that's how I'd watch these movies that I wasn't allowed to watch because <laughs> they'd be on Stars. Gotcha. <laughs> and that's how I saw Sliding Doors originally, I believe. And I remember really liking it but i wonder if a i liked it because it was a million years ago yeah and b because it was like ooh, i get to watch something i'm not supposed to watch <laughs> well and it felt like sliding doors to me felt like one of those moments that sort of transcended genres like it, it was a moment where a sort of mass uh, media sort of movie incorporated an element of sort of like fantasy or science science fiction in a way that like i feel like things had been more in in decades prior more kind of stuck in their silos of what a movie was and so even if it's not good i i kind of remember it as being a like genre crossing movie yeah it's like shania twain (laughs) (laughs) sliding doors is the shania twain of movies you're right when you're right you're right matt yeah, and neither one is held up as as much as I as I think they have probably over time. You know, <laughs> no offense to Nice Wayne, but you know. So this is our <laughs> final episode for the first season. Can you believe we're already here? I'm shocked. I when I saw the seasons were as long as they were, I was like, oh, okay, this is gonna feel like really long, but it's a flash, a flown by. So I thought we we could start our final episode of the first season with a fun little game because we have mm. talked a lot this season about the 90s and the things that we remember from it and obviously a lot of the beautiful 90s time capsule moments that we've seen in the show. So 
we're going to start off with just a short little game that I've created. And the the rules of this game are, I am going to read you a lyric from a song that was number one in 1990, the year that Law & Order premiered. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to sing the next line for me. So you have to identify what song it is, come up with the melody, and sing the next line. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be <laughs> something else. Are you ready? <laughs> I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Okay. The I first, love the game. <laughs> I think you'll get every single one of those, every single one of these. So there was like, I don't know, 30 different, 40 different number one songs over the course of 1990s, and I just picked four of them because I didn't think we needed a whole lot of these, but I just thought it would be a fun way to start the last episode of the first season. <laughs> okay, so the first lyric is, Baby seems we never, ever agree. Baby seems we never, ever agree. Baby seems we never, ever agree. Do you want me, what if I provide you the melody? You can try. I'm I'm lost. I'm okay. embarrassed. I haven't. I haven't warmed up my instrument, so this could be rough. <laughs> Baby, seems we never ever agree. Is that it? Is that it? <laughs> I don't know what that was. That sounded like a surfer song from the the, the 1960s. Is it a a group, a male or female artist? It is Paula Abdul. Oh, is it opposite attract? It sure is. Oh my god. Uh, see, I don't know all the words to that one. I mainly know the video and the chorus. Yes. You like the movies and I like TV. Oh, wow. Okay. Paula. Hey, Paula. <laughs> Our next song begins with, come on, baby, let's get away. Okay. Come on, baby. So my initial thought was, which is wrong. Is <laughs> Tiffany? I think we're alone now, just because of the the theme of the song. Yeah, but I know the beginning of that song is "Children Behave." So yes, okay. Come on, baby, let's get away. Is this "Holiday" by Madonna? No, but okay. you're you're heading in the right direction. So the melody is, "Come on, baby, let's get away." Oh, 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 oh okay. Come on, baby, let's get a escapade. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I want to take you on an escapade. Do, 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 da, 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 de, 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 do, 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 Escapade. We'll have a good time. I wonder if we're going to get sued. Okay. Uh, just, you know, leave your troubles behind. We don't if, have to worry about it. If you don't get this next one, I am revoking <laughs> your uh, your official queer membership card. Okay, okay, okay. I know there's pain. That's so vague. That's only four words. Okay. <laughs> it's like the opening words of the song. Think 1990s, number one hit, I Know There's Pain. This is a male. It's a woman. Artist. Or oh. uh, it's multiple women. Okay. Oh, ooh, that's, a, that's a tip. Okay. Multiple women, 90s. Is it En Vogue? Mm, no. <laughs> it's, it's my first This was kind the 90s, of their <laughs> only big hit. Like they had a couple other minor ones, but this was the big one. Girl, how many how many members of the group? It's three of members them. of the group. Three, and they all have a different color hair. It's not Wilson Phillips. It is Wilson Phillips. Oh my! <laughs> they they are not a one hit wonder. Come on, <laughs> name. They've got that and release me. Those are their two songs. Oh man, Wilson. I guess you're right. What's the next line in the song? Uh, I know there's pain. Why do you? Why yep. do you uh, lock yourself, why do you up, lock in yourself up in these chains? chains? <laughs> 
don't you know? You know what, Wilson and Phillips? I was like strangely interested in them when they were like, I guess not as popular anymore because I think VH1 did like a behind the music on them and it told so much about the the uh the way Carney Wilson was like hidden. Like oh yeah, would, yeah, yeah. They would like hide her body because they thought she was too large for the camera. And they yeah. put her behind a piano. Was it Car yeah, it was Carney. Um, I was always so interested in in them for no good reason because I don't know any other songs besides those. Yeah. I have met what's her name's uh personal assistant, the one who lives over here in Santa Barbara, the from Wilson Phillips. China? And sh you've met her personal assistant? Yeah, she Brag. used to shop for her. I, I know. This is another example of like bat. In our other podcasts, uh, one of the last episodes we recorded, we talked about our most sad uh, connections to celebrity. And this oh, definitely God. would be one of them. Yes. But I will say, I can't say anything about China Phillips. I've, I think I've seen her in the Whole Foods that I used to work at. Oh. And she was always nice, I believe. But the I, person who shopped for her was very... A demon. Oh my god. I still see her around town sometimes. Oof. And I just want to be like, I don't work at Whole Foods anymore. I'm gonna get you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, our last number one hit from 1990 starts mm. with Whatever You Want from Me, I'm giving you everything. Oh, oh, I know this one. <laughs> Whatever you want from me, I'm giving you everything. I'm, I'm your baby, baby tonight. tonight. <laughs> oh, I love that song. Is that, sh that's not Shaka Khan, is it? It's uh, Whitney Houston. Whitney Houston, duh. <laughs> oh my God, I love that song. It's so good. That's well, a really, I love that. Uh, I don't know the words to it, but. <laughs> oh yeah, that. that... <laughs> like fast part, yeah. faster part. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I'm sweating. That was fun. Well, you did. Um, not as well okay. as I thought you would. <laughs> I know, I know. You know what? I, I got, it sprung on me, and I feel like in the moment I did it fair. <laughs> <laughs> Next, at the end of season two, if you were finishing the first, or the last episode, you can uh, seek out your revenge on me. Oh, I will find a moment to, to throw a surprise game in sometime in season two, for sure. And it'll be fun. It won't be malicious, but you'll you'll get a taste of it. You know something else? <laughs> a, uh, a real long, long callback to a previous episode of either this podcast or the other one. I promised you a really, really embarrassing Sabrina the Teenage Witch story. Oh, if I know you... it. Oh, you still remember? At the beginning of every single episode of the other podcast, when I write my notes, I have the words Sabrina the Teenage Witch at the top of the, of the notes, every single one, <laughs> including this season. And I just, I don't want to force it in there because you specifically told me. So listeners, just so you get a, a real quick, what we're even talking about in our other podcast, Cool Story, which check it out. It's great. Yeah. N promised me on one of the episodes that they have a really great or embarrassing or funny Sabrina the Teenage Witch related story. But they will only reveal it if I'm able to work in a Sabrina the Teenage Witch reference organically into the episode. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought it would be a cinch. Our other podcast is about a fantasy book series. And yeah, you would think it would are, fit in. Yeah. yeah, they use some of the characters in the story are referred to as witches by other people. So I thought, oh, this is going to be so easy. <laughs> I have had the hardest time and I have been trying. <laughs> I haven't forgotten. <laughs> I can't wait for the moment. I, I had forgotten about that promise until semi-recently. And so... 
I can't wait for the moment. I'll probably forget about it again. And then suddenly I'll be like just forced to reveal the reveal the ugly truth. As long as you remember the story. That was my main fear oh. was that by the time I remembered <laughs> no. the, the reference, you're going to be like, oh, what was that going to be again? Oh, no, I remember immediately. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> All right. Should we get into the final episode of the season? I certainly think we should. I'm okay. ready. I'm ready too. Let's do it. So this is our season finale. It is episode 23 of our show, episode 22 of the Law and Order's first season. And the title is The Blue Wall. The events in this episode are going to be referenced in a much later episode on mm. Law and Order SVU. I know. Because Cragen will be in that as well if if you... Did he did he actually like cross over to be a series regular on SVU or did he just show up a couple times? Oh, no, he's in like the first like 10 seasons of SVU. He's in it for most of the time. Until oh, really? Maybe a few seasons ago. Yeah, he's is, the lieutenant. Does he stay in this one, too? He stays in. No, he stays in this one, I think, for a few more seasons. And then I feel like when SVU starts is when he leaves the show oh, wow. and they replace him. They actually replaced him, I believe, with uh, the actress we saw previously. Uh, S. Oh, uh, yeah. Her last name. But she becomes the new captain um, Captain for the, I think, most of the run of the show. Yeah, I actually know Cragen way more from SVU than I remember him from regular Law & Order, oh, ironically. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. I Because well, I, we've talked about, I primarily have seen SVU, not the original series. And so I'm surprised I didn't immediately connect him to that but i guess i only watched it enough to really remember stabler and uh the other one <laughs> benson oh my Thank god you. i mean come on i don't <laughs> olivia and elliot S- elliot okay i remember so you know half of each name. of their names <laughs> yeah <sighs> okay well in any event uh yeah you'll see his whole story if we end up doing svu uh down the line which i think we'll probably do in some capacity you'll get to see the whole story arc from when craigan begins to when he ends because oh. he does have an ending on the show so something that just business related really quick listeners matt and i have talked about starting a patreon and one of the things we've talked about putting up as content on the patreon is covering periodically episodes of svu the way we do the original Law and Order series. So if that's something that you would be interested in, uh, just shoot us an email and let us know because we still want to make sure that whatever we are offering on the Patreon is something that you are interested in. All right, so the episode begins in court with a group of defendants that essentially look like a three-person Mount Rushmore. Mm. And they're being found not guilty of money laundering and a few other related charges, much to what sounds like the chagrin of the courtroom. Everyone's kind of like, oh. There's a lot of of peas and carrots, peas and carrots, peas and carrots. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Watermelon, watermelon. (laughs) So... Yeah, there. It's clearly an unpopular decision, but right afterwards, outside, there's an attorney for the defense, and he's speaking to like this little mob of press, and mm-hmm. it very much reminded me of the scene from Chicago when they do the both. They both reach for the gun. Oh God, yes. <laughs> right down to the reporter who was like a total Christina Baranski. A hundred percent. I thought the exact same thing, and I was like, "You had her in a previous episode. You didn't need to find this like." <laughs> Oh, I forgot Knock we had Kareen Bur- uh, Christine Baranski in a, f- a previous episode. I love right? her. Oh, me too. So, uh, you know, the reporter's speaking to to the defense, and then they go over to Stone afterwards, and he says to them that, you know, they lost, but he wishes that he could have taken all of them down for murder, because rich bankers are not, 
they worked for drug dealers essentially and they're still criminals in his mind and he says that they're culpable and he accuses someone of the force someone on the force of the felony of erasing bank records which is ultimately why he believes they lost because they had evidence and then when they got to trial it was mysteriously tampered with gone erased etc he's he warns that charges will be filed and heads will roll <laughs> well <laughs> I said that, but you know, it was that kind of vibe. He's mm-hmm. like, don't worry, we're, mm-hmm. we're coming after these people. And then the opening credits begin. So I head into the other room and I started a game of risk with Davey. I've claimed <laughs> Alaska and Kamchatka and I've totally conquered Australia. So I feel like I'm in a pretty good place at that I, point. I actually <laughs> played several games of Monopoly and then came back. <laughs> oh yeah. Were you the banker in any of them? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Several. Which which piece of Monopoly do you like to be when you play Monopoly? Oh, 100% the little Scottish Terrier thing. I feel like so many people want the dog. I, who wouldn't want the dog, right? It's great. I mean, as long as I'm not the iron, I'm going to be okay. Like, the top hat's I, great. The thimble yeah. is okay. I the like car. the top hat. The car is okay. I like the, um, the wheelbarrow, because if you turn it upside oh, yeah. down, it kind of looks like a little, like, fox head. Mm-hmm. Like, okay. geometrical. <laughs> I don't remember that, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> Anyhow, I was able to play Risk pretty well and get to a good point before the opening credits began, uh, before the opening credits came to a close, rather. And we are back. So Cragen is now getting yelled at by internal affairs in his office in this scene. And Grievy has a newspaper that the headline reads, the DA is after top cops. So we get what the episode's going to be about if we didn't already from the episode title. Right. And apparently Cragen is pretty close with a gentleman named O'Farrell, who runs the evidence department. And he's known him for decades. They're very connected. And he's even said that most of his promotions he's gotten from O'Farrell. So yeah. little mentor situation. A lot of uh, idol worship in mm-hmm. this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Including some very weird, inappropriately intimate oh, moments that made me very yeah. uncomfortable. Yes, 100%. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. Oh, I yeah. I'll we'll get, get there. I'm sure. <laughs> okay, so all of the uh, evidently what happened in the case is that all of the data from this particular bank's computers that linked to the three gentlemen that were on trial before, everything that linked them to the crime has been mysteriously wiped clean, and the computers weren't completely wiped clean. Only the information that was previously there that linked these three gentlemen to the case was gone. So it's clearly a job that somebody knew what they were doing. A tampering. Mm-hmm. A tampering by someone who knows how to use Windows 98. <laughs> oh my God, that's so far ahead of that. I just realized that. <laughs> a lot. Wow, I didn't even know. What What did we use? I think we were still on DOS back then. I guess so. Oh, wow. I mean, I, I think I was. So... They decide that they are going to do some investigation on this because they don't want to believe that Cragen is involved. So they're they're already on another case, but they're like, listen, we're going to we're going to help you out. So they decide to go to find the detective who was the one who arrested the bankers in the first place and see, you know, what did what did they see when all this went down? So they're speaking to Detective Cassidy at a bar and he says they had the three gentlemen under suspicion, but Cragen had told them that they need a money trail before they start arresting him. And then poof, they arrest him. And then the money trail that they had, it disappears afterwards. Mm-hmm. So he tells them though, listen, you guys are, you know, you're turning over rocks because if IAD is involved, no one's talking. And Grievy says, turn over a rock. You might find a rattlesnake. 
<laughs> Lame. <laughs> I'm so unimpressed. I mean, I'm sure they're trying, but man, the writers on this with the with what they think are like pithy one-liners are mm-hmm. really cheesy. They get way better later on. Ugh, I hope so. <laughs> How could they not, honestly? Yeah. Grievy re- re- redeems himself a little later. He's got he's got a line. I, I think I noted it. <laughs> I hope I did. Uh so later next in forensics, they're questioning this uh detective named Shearer, who says that they got the discs. He was the other gentleman who was on the case. So they had gotten the discs and he had seen the files for sure. He knows the evidence was there, but he didn't process it because he he was going on his honeymoon that weekend and he wasn't going to be held up and, you know, everything was going to be there on Monday. So he says he came back from his honeymoon and the discs were changed and he says, you know, everything was gone. And what do you guys know about this Kraken fellow? And then he's like, wait a second, you guys are an IAD? You work with Kraken? Mm. Hey, what's going on here? (laughs) (laughs) It's just a very gotcha moment they think they have. Yeah. And they're like, well, we won't say anything if you won't say anything. You watched Parks and Recreation, right? Yeah, not all the way through, but a lot, tons of it, yeah. Do you remember the episodes of Gotcha with the journalist? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, screaming. I I love those so much. (laughs) If you haven't watched Parks and Recreation, it is truly a really brilliant tv show and it has one of the best series endings of any show i've ever watched Ooh, oh i don't know it don't tell me (laughs) okay i won't i love that show it is my boss's favorite show at work and she always like works it into (laughs) conversation yeah conversations are like inspirational things at the end of meeting she'll be like here's a quote from leslie nope and i love 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 it so much because i love that i love that show Get past the first season. The oh first yeah, the first season's, season's okay. not great. It's okay. Yeah, but it doesn't. It doesn't inform like what happens in the rest of the show. It's very. I feel like the first season was very much like, okay, we're gonna do a uh, you know office a quirky type office of thing. type thing. Yeah, and then exactly. they found their footing with season two. Yeah, as if no one's watched Parks and Rec by now. <laughs> <laughs> we're really into timely recommendations on this show. Hey, have you all heard of Buffy the Vampire Slayer? <laughs> Have you guys been to the movie theater? Actually, these days, maybe not. No. Okay, so they have this moment and they decide, you know, we're going to go back to Craig and tell him what we found out. And when they do, he gets a little defensive, but he kind of cools off and he's like, okay, so they're after me because I know this guy, but okay, fine. Let's see what else we can find and try to get this, get some more clarity. I don't want to be investigated, yada, yada, yada. So they decide, okay, well... You're kind of got your hands tied because they're looking at you, but they're not looking at us. So we'll go talk to O'Farrell because that's the guy who, you know, they're linking him to that's got him into this whole sticky situation, it seems. They go talk to O'Farrell and they meet him at this restaurant that looks like every single 90s or early 2000s show or movie Hmm. when they're trying to depict like extreme waspy wealth. Yes. This is where they dine. Every, every place. It's like... There's a single red flower on every table with a white tablecloth, lots of like stuffy suits and gray hair and mm-hmm. updos and mm-hmm. pearl earrings, <laughs> you know, all that classical music in the background. And this guy that they meet there, O'Farrell, is stuffing his face <laughs> while talking to the detectives so mm-hmm. much that I was like, it, this has to be a plot point, but it's not. <laughs> It's just a character choice, I On guess. On Sinisterhood, one of the hosts, I've talked about how they're from Texas and how much I love their Southern accents. And one of them talked about how, like, sometimes I eat too fast and my food gets in my breathing hole. 
haven't been there. Uh. Um, so they're at this dinner and then they, the detectives cut to the chase after some corny conversation and they say like, why is IAD after like you and Cragen? What's going on? And he says that it's just political and they're just scapegoats for the DA's office because they lost the case. So they're okay. They're like, all right, let's get out of here. We're not getting much. They attempt to look at the evidence on the case, but when they get down to, you know, I don't know, the basement where Mm -hmm. they keep evidence, you know, the, the caged area, every law, the evidence locker has. Yeah. Oh, okay. There you go. That's what it is. <laughs> so they get there and they're talking to this guy at, um, at the front and he's not willing to give anything up. He knows he makes who they are right away. They can't get away with the same trick of trying to pretend they're on IAD <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, listen, we're not going to give you anything, but I will show you the sign in logs for the days in question, because I know that when IAD came, they looked at this and it's a very much like we're police officers or police officers. We're helping each other out kind of thing. Right. So on the log, they see that Cragen had signed in two days during the week that evidence was messed with. Mm. And that's unusual. It's very suspicious of him. Very suspicious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when they bring it back to him, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. I was just helping an acquaintance with some work that he, you know, didn't have time to do for whatever reason. And they're like, mm, not buying mm, it. Yeah. <laughs> but they're like, all right, let's 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 follow up. So there's a little bit of a heated exchange before they leave. And you can tell tensions are getting high. Detectives are getting a little bit suspicious of Cragen, even though they don't want to. But things aren't looking great. Yeah. They go talk to the guy that Cragen had allegedly <laughs> allegedly helped out. And he says that, yes, that Cragen had helped him. Um, and he is not willing to cross the blue wall, he says. But he says that Cragen did help him. It was his volunteer. He volunteered to do it. And... This, like, doesn't really solve anything for Grievy because at first he's like, oh, great, it's true. But then he's like, oh, he volunteered. So maybe he wanted to go to, you know, maybe he's setting up an alibi. Right. The next scene starts with oh, with this really hot cop walking by. Oh, I don't I remember mean, that. Oh, we never see him again. It's Damn so it. upsetting. It's kind of like that hot waiter in that one scene. Oh, God, he was hot. Yeah, this guy was even hotter. He was like... Yeah, he, David was like, oh, man, I hope he is in the show. <laughs> I'm like, I'm glad I'm not the only. Like, I hope this episode perf. suddenly becomes about stripper cops or something. <laughs> oh, my God. He totally could have been a stripper cop. So let's all mourn the moment that we never see this guy again, unfortunately. Damn. Okay. All right. And we're back. So Logan's back in the evidence locker area again. He's by himself this time. And he's arguing with the guy who's refusing the budge. And Logan calls him a son of a bitch, and then he's like, all right, come here. Come back. Come back. <laughs> Meet me in the men's room upstairs in five minutes. I <laughs> And I was uh, like, <laughs> um... I don't know where this episode is going, Yeah, but I'm I was kind like, of intrigued. I can't exactly. lie. <laughs> exactly. I was like, okay. Okay, I've seen... I've seen movies like this. Movies. See some films. Please note that everyone that Matt should be putting air quotes around the word movies. Hell, I've almost started movies like that. <laughs> <laughs> that began in that kind of shady way. <laughs> yeah, right. Started in movies like that. would be rich. Poor. So <laughs> Logan goes up to the bathroom and he's primping in the mirror. You know, he's excited, but there's some you know, other people in the bathroom. But when they exit, he's like, okay, he's ready for his moment. But he's disappointed to find out the guy just leaves the stall and heads out. 
Also, I want to note that the stalls in these bathrooms look like saloon doors in a, like, <laughs> Wild West bar. Did they? So, yes. <laughs> they were, like, slatted wood that you could see through, you could see over, <sighs> you could see underneath. Like, they only provided the bare minimum of privacy. It was gross. I hate stalls like that. Oh, I've yeah. hated stalls like that my whole life. It's like, what is the point? I'll just hold it. There was a... I'm not going to tell stories about bathrooms. That's not interesting. <laughs> I saved you all. Next I caught time. myself. <laughs> Next time. So Logan sees the guy leave and he's disappointed. And he's like, I'm so stupid. I can't believe I thought this was going to be big. <laughs> I thought we <laughs> so had a connection. Yeah, I thought he wanted me. <laughs> no, he, he gets over it pretty quickly. And he goes into the stall and finds that the gentleman had left behind a newspaper with some evidence tucked into it. Would you ever, I would never touch a newspaper sitting on the ground of a public restroom absolutely not i don't no. i wouldn't even touch also, something i dropped sometimes i know that now we live in a world where we all look at our phones while we're going to the bathroom but mm. i really have always been really grossed out by reading materials next to the toilet that's always been a thing but i, I know i just don't like it <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't like the idea of someone like carrying a newspaper into the bathroom with them. But I I, yes. I think if you go to a bathroom where there's just like a newspaper stand. I'd, I like that even less. I would rather everybody bring their own reading material and leave with their reading material. Oh, you know what? Now that I think about that, that's actually really gross. Because then when people like urinate in the bathroom, they're like essentially spraying the yes. newspaper stand and then you're touching them that's oh, my God. point absolutely disgusting I'll never do i mean i feel like that's a very dated thing to see but oh yeah like we don't I'll have readers digest sitting in the bathroom anymore readers <laughs> digest yes exactly next to the tv guide and oh yeah good housekeeping okay so he takes the evidence from the bathroom he's disgusting and he takes it down to grievy and he shows him that Inside the little folder is both a duty roster and the uh, roll call from the evenings in question. And they're wondering, why do we have both? You know, that's essentially should be the same thing. The people that are there one night should be on both of these. What's what's the point? What's the big right. moment? Right. What's the discrepancy? Yeah. What's what's the what's the deal? Can you hear my dog barking? Oh, I actually thought you were like thinking. I thought you were like whispered something. Oh, you thought I was whispering dog barks? <laughs> I didn't hear. It didn't sound like dog barks. It just sounded like like quiet noise. Like, okay. <laughs> kind of like thing. silent muttering to myself, which is excellent podcast content. <laughs> so they look over both the duty roster and the roll call, and they see that there's a gentleman named McCory, and he's on the master roll call, but he is not on the duty roster, right? Sure. Oh, I re I re I resit in that. He's not on the master roll call, but he is on the duty roster. And the duty roster is the one that actually shows who is there. So the roll call shows that he was not supposed to be there, so he shouldn't have been on that. Mm. But the actual duty roster shows that he was there. So that's strange. The plot and thickens. Even, mm, and it thickens even more because when they look into it, they see that McCory was supposed to have retired two weeks prior. So why is he even working at all? I know. Hello. When I quit a job, I'm out of there. Oh, my God. Out of there. See you all never again. See you never. So as they put this together, there's this really cute little thing that happens. I don't know if you picked up on it, but Davey saw it or heard it. 
at, they're at like a diner when they figure this out. And as they piece this together, the register goes, cha-ching. <laughs> Like at that moment. <laughs> we've talked about Aquaman before, right? I realize that sounds like a really big non sequitur. The movie? Talk- yeah. You've you mentioned it, I think, on one of on one of the two podcasts. Well, just to reiterate again, whoever was in charge of sound for Aquaman should never be allowed to work in film again because anytime something dramatic happened, no exaggeration, the music went bum 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 every time. They probably came from the early days of Law and Order because they're up to the same tricks. It seems like <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Like it would be like if an actual light bulb went off over their heads suddenly. Oh, a hundred percent. And you know that the the writers or whoever came up with this like high fived. Oh, added for in, like, sure. Yes. They were like, oh, God, I'm the next, you know, Stanley Kubrick. I just put a <laughs> cha-ching noise in. I'm the director of the century. Stanley Kubrick known for his uh, sound effects, SFX. I was just uh, okay shut up I was just trying to think of a director who's well respected I'll take it I'm really bad with like directors producers all those names so oh yeah I hope Stanley Kubrick is even well respected oh greatest filmmakers in cinematic history okay good I'm safe you got it you're you're safe (laughs) so anywho (laughs) they realized that uh, they're starting to piece everything together. They go to show up at this retired gentleman's huge estate. It's a huge, huge house. And when they get there, he's like the crotchetiest, angriest guy, like telling them to get off his property. He says, what are you guys doing here? He slams the door in their face. And beforehand, he mentions like, are you guys with Kraken? Mm. So if it wasn't already a shady situation, like this guy's got no chill and totally makes himself see- seem way more shady than anything previous right like sir now we know you're hiding something (laughs) like just plead the fifth and slam the door at least right i have nothing to say good day like exactly good day sir (laughs) i said good day (laughs) greavy decides after this to make a house call and he goes to craigan's and we meet his wife who i forgot that he was even married um oh yeah she's a flight attendant and she's like oh nice to see you i gotta go i'm going to work and she's out of there and Craigan is like, oh, just here for a fun, friendly talk, which clearly is not happening. Greavy takes him inside, or I guess I guess Craigan invites him inside. <laughs> Greavy takes him inside his own home. <laughs> Craigan invites him inside and they're kind of, you know, chatting about everything that's been going on, whatever they've uncovered. And Greavy mentions, you know, like, what's going on? What do you know about these guys? And Craigan's keeping his mouth shut. A lot of like, I've known these guys for 20 years. They're they're good cops. We're all good people. And Grievy mentions, yeah, I noticed that you got a new pool being installed right now. Mm. And then Craigan says, forget I asked you to help me. And Grievy says, you better run yourself a little reality check. The sharks are out and there's blood in the water. And I thought that was way better. That was, that way better, was better, to be honest. Yeah. And I think he like puts his hat on as he says it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> and then he he does. He leaves. Grievy's got his groove back. He's like Stella. So, <laughs> all right. So we're back. We're back, and we're on the street. It's the next scene. Logan is being accosted by two um, people in the IAD who kind of like pull up on him, and they're like, "Back off! Back off of everything!" <laughs> Again, leave us alone. Really, just drawing as much attention as possible at this point. Totally, totally. And as they're threatening him to back off, they mention like details about the case, and it's it's enough. I don't even remember what it was, 
but like Logan like remembers something they say and puts it in his back pocket. And in the next scene, he tells Grievy, and with whatever he was able to, I think they mentioned someone's name or like their role, and then Grievy hears it and he's like, "Oh wait, that makes sense because that links this whole thing to Billy Watson, who essentially was." Um, He's a congressman now, but he used to be on the force, and he got O'Farrell, like, his position now. So Fun O'Farrell fact, also oh. the child uh, version of Shazam. <laughs> That's Billy Batson. I'm kidding. Keep going. Wow. So Billy Wilson is a congressman now, but he got O'Farrell his position. And he is now connected to everything because it, I think it was connected to some kind of election thing. Doesn't really mm-hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they figure, okay, now that Billy Wilson's involved, he probably needed a favor, and O'Farrell would have been the perfect person to do it for him. Cragen hears all this. He doesn't want anything to do with all of this. He hates hearing this, and he throws a little fit, and then we transition over to the order side of the case. So now Stone says that they need a real motive. Um, He's talking with IAD, and he says he wants to go after whoever's responsible. He thinks that this... This tampering was terrible. We saw at the beginning of the tri- of the episode that he's, you know, gunning for these people, but he's not willing to go for them unless they have a strong case. So all they have right now is supposition. And Schiff tells Robinette to draw the pyramid and then take a piece out to watch it fall. And the way they see it, this pyramid, is Congressman Wilson at the top, followed by O'Farrell in the evidence department, and then Cragen is like the low hanging fruit the weakest link yeah goodbye (laughs) so stone approaches congressman wilson and he denies everything of course but stone basically says you stand to lose everything so i would either retire now or take a deal for bribery and he's like uh i'm not taking a deal for a felony charge and he rejects it out of hand there's a like strong air arrogance with these gentlemen that they approach yeah They're wealthy, they have a lot of money, they have a lot of power, they're not worried. So next we see a meeting start in the DA's office with both Logan and Grievy, um, you know, Robin and Stone, of course, and then the two men from IAD are there. And uh, anywho, um, he and his partner are pissed that the detectives are in on this meeting because, as we know, they previously accosted Logan on the street and said, back off! But now they're here, and Logan and Grievy have this look on their face, like, <laughs> when people, like, get their way in front of someone who previously said they couldn't get their way. Yeah. And then they look at that person like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> This is, like, my PTSD from working in retail speaking, by the way. <laughs> and IAD's like, what are they doing here? And Stone's like, forget it, they're here. They got evidence. Just chill. And the uh, detectives... Uh, I guess it's Grievy mainly. Grievy is like, all right, well, here's what we got. We got more information than you guys have because we have both the duty roster and the roll call thing. And it shows this other gentleman on the uh, case. And you guys didn't know that. So do your jobs. (laughs) And there's this like shameful moment where they look at each other like, oh, another gotcha moment. (laughs) (laughs) So after they get this other gotcha moment and they look at each other like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. What are we going to do? We got a scene back in shifts chambers with just robinette and stone and they are trying to figure out you know what was the motive what's going on and they go through their finances and they see that mccrory or mccrory i forget how to pronounce his name doesn't matter the guy who was retired who shouldn't have been working his house that he owns is 
huge as we said and it's super 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 like expensive but he bought it for half of the listing price from congressman wilson's wife convenient yeah exactly and i was like you know what i hope i get a deal like that in the future where i get a house for half the listing price and i hope i'm not like investigated for it (laughs) if you get a house for half the listing price and you're not like uh doing illegal <laughs> activities it's probably because somebody else is like that house is on top of a graveyard or something i was going to say like let it just be a thing where like it could be haunted i can live with a ghost i guess it depends on what the ghost is doing if it's biting your sandwich <laughs> i mean i've lived with total monsters before i can live with a ghost i can <laughs> totally do it <laughs> fair all right i won't call out their names even though i want to okay so o'farrell and wilson are now in court in the next scene and they're pleading not guilty of course and the bailiff by the way who's reading off the charges i don't know if you've noticed this he sounds so sloshed and drunk i didn't I notice that was shocked it wasn't part of the plot again yeah. another thing that was just i guess a character choice it was like weird <laughs> slurring of speech and he was even like leaning on the judges like <laughs> i feel like thing. i wonder half the time if it's just the way that that random guest actor speaks or if the director is like hey you know what try this take try it drunk or (laughs) i wonder if uh you know the actor is just like i'm gonna try to steal the scene i'm gonna act drunk and that's gotta be like fuck it fuck it whatever good enough i think that's what it is and they're like you know what whatever it's season one we'll go with it (laughs) we're behind shooting schedule let's keep it moving Yeah, they're like, maybe we can use this in another episode to start off the crime. (laughs) People won't notice. It's fine. (laughs) So the the normal arrogance we've seen with the defense team is is keeping up. No one really believes that they're in any sort of trouble. It's not surprising based on how these kind of cases usually go. Even Stone says in the episode that the reason they want so much evidence is because white collar crime is so hard to prosecute. Right. And so with everything they have now between what IAD had and what Detective Logan and Grevy presented, they figure that the gentleman who we saw go away for his, like, honeymoon, honeymoon. Detective Shearer earlier, they think he actually is the one who's responsible for everything because he's the one... It's like one of those he-who-smelt-it-dealt-it moments. (laughs) (laughs) He's the one who told IAD how the discs got erased right. and who presented it. Yes. And they think that it was totally done so that he would like throw suspicion off of him by being the one who discovered, discovered it it's and like, kind of look like a hero. It's like the person who killed somebody leading people to the body. <sighs> Which uh, I, I, Those are the types of crimes that like get me. So like, the, like the one I mentioned, um, what's her name? Oh my Diane Downs, like drawing attention to themselves oh, yeah, yeah, after yeah, yeah, the yeah. fact For like sure. doing things to try to throw people off and then ultimately getting tangled in their own web of deceit <laughs> yeah like i always see this clip online when they're talking about cases like this on like true crimey things someone is missing a woman is either missing or they find her body <gasps> and the person joins the search party yeah and oh. he's interviewed on camera being like i hope we find her da, 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 that da, da. is chilling. and like yeah and i think that they find out that they found her body and he hears it live on camera uh-huh like oh you know they found her body how do you feel and you could see that like panic in his face right oh my god chilling okay so that's what they're uh, essentially assuming this this was he is trying to throw suspicions elsewhere Okay, they also find out that on the day in question, Detective Shearer was unaccounted for for three hours. And they present this to him, but, you know, him and his attorney are tight-lipped, and they're like, uh, you got nothing. 
uh, we're, we're out of here. And Stone is pretty confident, though. He can tell, like, how he shook up this guy, and he thinks that between what they have so far and then they put a tap on Shearer's phone, they're going to get what they need. So next we have Cragen coming in with his lawyer and they want him to wear a wire, but Cragen doesn't want to do it because no cop will ever trust him again. And they tell him, okay, well, your alternative is we'll indict you. And he's like, okay, I guess I'll wear a wire. <laughs> so next scene starts back on the stand with someone who is either... Um, <laughs> Hope you remember this character. It's my favorite character from the whole episode. It's someone who's either auditioning for the role of Blanche Devereaux, mm. or she's doing impre- Karen's impression of the old prospector from My Favorite Murder. <laughs> Why there hasn't been a uh, jury around here in twenty five years? <laughs> she literally starts with the line, "That house hasn't been occupied for sixteen months." <laughs> <laughs> oh, the old timey prospector! I love it. Yes she's very that was my like immediate thought and then davy was like she's very much like blanche from golden girls and i was like oh wait it's a, it's definitely a blend yes 100 <laughs> percent. um she says that she sold the house to mccrory two days after it went on the market and for half the price against her better wishes but you know her client said sell the house sell it to him for that price i don't care and not surprisingly in the next scene we find out that Detective Shearer was recorded, essentially confessing over the phone, just like Stone thought would happen. Mm -hmm. Um, He's on the phone with McCrory, who's telling him, like, shut up, don't say anything. (laughs) He testifies next in court that McCrory asked him to take care of it, um, and he got paid $20,000. So he was told to take care of the wiping of the computer stuff, get rid of the evidence, and I'll shoot you a a 20 grand. On cross-examination, they try to, you know distance the defendants from Shearer in any way possible like they never met in real life how do you even know it doesn't go over huge like it doesn't seem like a big moment but it's enough to get Schiff nervous about the case and he tells them okay we need more so you got to indict Kraken because he knows something and I don't think he's involved but he knows something yeah they talk to Kraken about them indicting him and he's all pissed off and he's he's really upset and he says I'm you know you're backing me against the wall and I'm I'm really pissed and he goes to walk out of the room and I'm not doing anything for you and he has this moment of like clarity he's standing outside the, the door and he's like okay all right and his conscience gets to him he goes back inside and goes okay I'll wear a wire he wears the wire he doesn't get a lot of information initially besides blasting bat- bagpipe music outside yeah and uh there's this really tense moment with O'Farrell where he's like you're not wearing a wire are you and Craig is like would I do that to you yeah, it's re- but I thought it was really well done. It was because it's he like was on his acting game in that moment. Yeah, I was nervous for him. He tells him, "Okay, I trust you. Like, let's let's talk later. Let's talk. You know, when we have more privacy." He agrees to meet him for dinner later, and Cragen wears the wire again. And while he's there, he before he goes, he comes up with a plan, and he tells Stone, "Tell like let it leak out that I'm going to get indicted, and let's just go from there. I know I have a plan." So he lets the information leak, and when he's having, um, I guess, like, food and drinks with his friend O'Farrell later, you know, O'Farrell's like, oh, you're getting indicted, I heard. And, you know, he's using that to say, I actually have some information about this case that shows that you're involved. I can get rid of it, and I'm not trying to, like, you know, blackmail you, but I've heard that this is the kind of thing that might be done, and I could really use some money right now. Right. And he's like, wow, you're one of my best guys. I didn't think you were like this. And it's kind of like a moment where he's like, oh, no, did I kind of blow it? Did I have him wrong? But he's like, 
All right, well, I'll give you, I'll cut you in. No problem. I just didn't think you were that kind of guy. I didn't think you were like basically a shit ass like me. Right. <laughs> and he's like, all right. And it's this like very menacing scene where he might get caught again. Um, but he gets, gets out of there without getting caught. He, in the next scene, we see him testifying against O'Farrell, his like really good friend of 20 years, who's giving him this death stare. And uh, the jury finds McCrory, O'Farrell, and Wilson all guilty of all three charges against them each. And in the next scene, Cragen says to Grievy that the swimming pool he was so suspicious about earlier was paid for by his wife. Mm. And they were left at the end of the scene. And I guess the point is to be like, look, they don't make that much money. And, you know, you had thought you had it all wrong. You know, on his salary, he can't even afford to to help his wife out with a big purchase. Yeah. So. Look at that. You didn't mention the really uncomfortable face touching that happened in the oh. interaction between Cragen and O'Farrell. O'Farrell. Yeah. Where he's yeah, like, he does. He reaches out and touches Stone's face and like m- caresses the side of his face while being like, I thought you were one of my good boys. It's so yeah. uncomfortable to watch. It is really uncomfortable. It's very like, almost like grooming. Yes. A hundred percent. Two men of the same age. It's really weird. And he's got like this big mitt of a hand that he's like, Oh yeah. Patting Cragen on the face <laughs> with. And Cragen's got this like look on his face, like, Oh my God, I'm in trouble. And he's got this look on his face. Like, don't test me. It's really uncomfortable. hundred <laughs> percent. Uh, well, great job. Thank you. I have no clue where we're going as far as the crime. Well, and I know you have a lot to say about I it. I do. So. so the true crime I actually had a couple of choices because the Law and Order wiki says that this case was based on a case involving a police officer named Joe Sanchez. And in the story about Joe Sanchez, they talk about how much this case was similar to the case of Serpico, which is the, um, you know, the, the Al Pacino movie. Mm-hmm. which was based on a real case, Frank Serpico. I don't know hardly anything about that, Yeah, I've heard of it. I think Serpico is one of those names that people sort of like know and recognize if you don't necessarily know the whole story. Mm-hmm. But so I essentially could choose between those two. And I decided to do a lot of, I decided to do the lesser known case, the case of Joe Sanchez, instead of the Serpico case, which I figured, you know, maybe we could do on a later case about police corruption, or we could do on like Patreon or something like that if we wanted to. Okay. So here's the thing, though. The case of Joe Sanchez is one where all of the sources that I was able to locate are ones that are primarily from the perspective of Joe Sanchez, which makes some sense when we start talking about his case. But I pre- I say that in advance because I want to be cautious. I want to be cautious in how much I present this story as objective fact. And mm-hmm. I think it's worthwhile for people who are listening to just kind of be like, well, maybe that's what happened. Maybe it wasn't. Only because we really only have one side of this story, primarily. And everything leads me to believe all of Joe Sanchez's testimony or perspective on all of this. So I'm kind of like, I I do believe most of the sources that I'm getting here. I just wanted to offer that disclaimer that it's not particularly unbiased sources. Gotcha. So my sources Great. are a 2008 Daily News article by John Marzulli. 
a 2016 Baltimore Post-Examiner article by Doug Papa, bluewallnypd.com, which is Joe Sanchez's website, I believe. I actually read Joe Sanchez's autobiography called True Blue. Wow. I listened to an episode of a podcast called One Tough Podcast. Episode 34 features an interview with Joe Sanchez. I will say I struggled through both the autobiography and that podcast because they, (laughs) I think we've discussed that I am of the perspective that we should defund policing and work on prison abolition and instead work on alternative forms of justice. And both of these were very like pro-police, like former police talking in both the podcast and the autobiography. So I just, I didn't love that, but Mm -hmm. those were the sources that I had. And then also there was a series of YouTube interviews with Joe Sanchez by somebody who is described as a civilian journalist. And I'm not going to mention their name because there's a little bit of like a tinfoil hat feeling about this person that makes me a little uneasy. (laughs) Got it. I totally, I I had a very similar source I could have used for one of my previous okay. cases, and that's the exact reason why I didn't okay, use perfect. it. Okay, <laughs> perfect. Um, Get it. <laughs> but I did, like, you know, Joe Sanchez is speaking in those, so, like, I was able to take that, but the kind mm-hmm. of journalistic merit of this, yeah. this person's perspective was, I think, kind of questionable. Okay, so those were my sources, and as I said, this episode is about the Blue Wall, which we talked about how that's the code of honor among police officers, uh, kind of protecting each other against errors, misconduct, or crimes, and how reporting them is seen as an act of betrayal, that there's sort of this expected loyalty that I think in Joe Sanchez's autobiography, he actually describes as on par with the omerta that the Italian mob swear, like on that level of of allegiance, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So Joe Sanchez was born Jose Manuel Sanchez Picon in uh, on January 16th, 1947 in Santurce, which is one of the most densely populated neighborhoods in Puerto Rico. He was the middle of five children, and in the 1950s, when he was five, his family relocated to New York City and settled in Manhattan. Shortly after they moved to Manhattan, Joe's parents divorced, and when his mother remarried, they relocated to the South Bronx, which is where Joe went to primary and secondary school. Mm, okay. Joe, in his autobiography, talks about how he wasn't like super into school, but he did graduate from Theodore Roosevelt High School, and after graduation, he really wanted to join the armed forces. Like That was his goal in life. And... For reasons unknown to him at the time, he was not accepted by any of the four military branches upon his graduation. Wow. Uh, Which is kind of surprising because this was around the time of Vietnam, the Vietnam War. And so Joe in his autobiography writes that in a time when the fancy kids were looking for ways to get out of military service, I had the opposite problem. Yeah, I was going to say, this is like a time when I think recruitment was like at an all-time high. high, Yeah. And they weren't necessarily using the best, most uh, transparent practices (laughs) when they were uh recruiting people yeah i had so that's surprising my my high school government teacher talks about how when the draft was happening you know you would get uh orders to report and you know when you would arrive they would say um you know open that door walk into the room and have a seat on that chair and 
if you did that, that was the test because you, your hearing was good enough to hear my directions. Your like logic processing was strong enough to follow directions. If you could like physically get into the door and sit on the chair, then you were like, quote unquote, physically fit enough to serve in the war. So he talks about how like the, the standard or the sort of like expectation of anyone during the draft was less because they just needed people so badly. Right. So the benchmark was you can follow directions without questioning us. Exactly. So one part of his autobiography does talk about how when he was like 12 or 14 years old, he got into a little bit of trouble with the law that sort of didn't really result in any arrest or record, but he sort of theorizes a few times and, and a couple people sort of like mentioned to him like, oh, there's something in your past that kind of excludes you from being selected for service. So he th- he thinks that's what it is, but he n- doesn't ever actually really find out the answer to why he is denied acceptance to the to the military. But he did sign up for selective service and so when the draft actually was initiated, he was drafted into the army to serve in Vietnam at the age of 18. And in his autobiography, he really describes how much pride he felt at being accepted into the army. On his 20th birthday, he and his battalion were deployed near Phan Thiet, the capital of the Binh Tuan province. I'm sure that I am not pronouncing those 100% correctly, but I did listen to a lot of pronunciations to try to get that correct. So my apologies if I still failed. I was going to say far better than I would have done. (laughs) On that day, his unit was engaged in a firefight with the Viet Cong, and Sanchez writes, Some of us started down the embankment. Our platoon leader went ahead. I stepped aside to let him pass, and some of the group followed him, and I wound up picking picking up the rear. That was when the grenade came at us and exploded. I remember calling out in Spanish, Oh my God, Mom, I've been shot in the head, and thinking I was going to die. I felt burning sensation in my arms, legs, and groin. Then everything went from fast to slow motion. I saw Booker, which is one of his uh, unit uh, colleagues, tumble down the embankment to my right, and to me he looked like a store mannequin floating in some twilight zone. Even the leaves blown off the trees seemed like they were hovering instead of falling. Mm -hmm. So Sanchez was pretty severely injured as a result of this attack, and despite his injuries, he, in his autobiography, talks about how he immediately attempted to get up and help other injured soldiers that he saw, but another officer tackled him to the ground and was like, don't move, because he was injured so badly and kind of called for medic support. So in his autobiography, of course, you know, I think anybody writing an autobiography probably wants to portray themselves in a positive light, but by all accounts, Joe Sanchez does does sound like somebody who is pretty selfless and interested in helping people. Okay. So in that fight, he and three of his comrades were severely wounded by shrapnel from the grenade, and he was awarded the Army Commemoration Medal as well as the Purple Heart. And when he was recovering from his wounds, he was discharged from the Army and returned to New York. So he worked for a time as a taxi and ambulance driver and on various occasions applied to be a police officer with the New York Police Department. Again, was not accepted. Like he he continually was trying and getting rejected every time and talks about these recruitment processes where, you know, they'd be like in a room and they'd be calling out names and then it was like, okay, you're all selected. And he would always be in the group that wasn't. That's so weird that they aren't telling him what's going on. Wouldn't that be your first question? Like- 
Well, and they're very, he talks about like asking people like why, and they're very like, just something. And part of it he does talk about was he's short. Like he was, he's five foot seven Mm -hmm. and, or I think he might've said five foot six, but they, the height limit or height minimum for NYPD was lowered um, after that time. And that was like part of, eventually he does join NYPD. And so that's part of like what allowed him to get in was at for a while, he was not meeting the minimum height requirement. I would like to note, I am about five foot seven and I don't think I'm short, but you know, I guess by the world standards, I'm just not stacking up. Are you really five seven? <laughs> um, yeah, I think my driver's license says five seven. The last physical I had, I think I was five eight. But you know, oh. somewhere between there. I didn't know I was that much taller than you. I thought you were only like a couple inches shorter than me. So he took the entrance examination at the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey Police Department and was accepted. And so he served with the Port Authority in New York from January nineteen seventy one to October seventy three. And the Port Authority is a branch of the police department that protects and enforces the laws at airports, seaports, bridges and tunnels, and some other various facilities. So during this time, again, his application to the NYPD was rejected, because this time due to a technicality in his application. So he took it to a police review board and was finally, um, in 1973, accepted as a candidate for the police department. If at first you don't succeed, try a zillion, bajillion He's times. <laughs> very persistent. Like, this was clearly a dream of his. Okay. After six months of training with the New York Police Academy, he was assigned to the 90th Precinct in Brooklyn. And that is by Brooklyn and Williamsburg, according to his autobiography. And I don't know if that means anything to you. Um, Williamsburg is a part of Brooklyn. And okay. currently, Williamsburg is very hipstery gentrified oh, oh okay like that makes very sense. very hipstery i don't know what it was back then but i know that brooklyn like when you think of brooklyn and you think of like the hipster ish yeah. vibe of it it's it's um it's that that's williamsburg it's williamsburg yeah okay so it was during this assignment that he would come to hear about and understand the blue wall which was the police codes um of officers supporting each other and talks about how they took it as seriously as the omerta that the mafia takes. So during his work with the 90th Precinct, Sanchez talks about some different encounters with other police officers where he um, is doesn't seem to sort of jive with their belief system. Like he talks about one story of two young Latino men being harassed by other officers and like thrown up against the wall and he stops the other officers and is like, what are you talking about? Like, and they're like, oh, they're, and he refers to them as illegal immigrants. The other officers do. And Joe Sanchez like talks to the young men and they say they're from Puerto Rico. And so he's like, actually, that's a province of the United States. So they're not like illegal immigrants, you idiots. <laughs> so, and their response to Sanchez is to kind of like shamble off and be like and basically are like it's nice to know we have backup so he he doesn't seem to be particularly popular among many of his colleagues is Mm -hmm. kind of the impression i get he's getting a reputation i guess yes and we'll talk about that soon so during this period was the period of the nap commission or kind of the nap commission started before this and sort of rolled over into this which we talked about on a previous episode was investigation into police corruption Um, And so 
in this period of time, he was actually thought to be a field associate spying on other cops. So that was one of the reasons that he didn't uh, kind of get the trust that of his fellow police officers was they thought he was a plant. During um, his time with NYPD, he served in a few different precincts before being transferred to the 30th, which is an area of Harlem that is primarily residential, and that includes Hamilton Heights, Sugar Hill, and West Harlem. During this time, Sanchez came to get a bit of a reputation as being really dedicated to his work in the 30th Precinct and was known by his colleagues as well as members of the community as, quote, the arrest machine and, quote, a super cop. So he, by all accounts, is like working really hard, appears to be doing things on the up and up, and gets this reputation of like, I don't personally, I don't think being an arrest machine is something to be celebrated, but that's something that the his police peers respected. I would far rather be a time cop like Frankie Muniz <laughs> and Hillary or a Duff. Robocop. Come on. <laughs> if I'm going to be any kind of cop, Robocop. Super cop? <sighs> yeah. Grow up. So. According to an article by the New York Daily News, Sanchez stated that he once walked into a shop to get some coffee, and the man at the counter recognized him, immediately put his hands on the counter and said, okay, Sanchez, you got me. Don't shoot. And turns out the man was wanted for robbery and was in possession of a gun, but Sanchez was just there to get some coffee, and this guy, like, volunteered himself. So that's kind of an indication of the reputation he had in the community. Easy day at work. In 1981, Sanchez arrested a man driving a yellow Lincoln with tinted windows after the man... Okay, so here's part of the problem with Joe Sanchez's autobiography. Part of the problem is that car sounds hideous. (laughs) uh, It sounds the ugliest car I can imagine, honestly. And Joe Sanchez's autobiography is written by him, and his writing (laughs) is... As opposed to a ghostwriter, come on. I'm sorry. I hate you. (sighs) So I don't think his writing is great personally. And so a lot of it is like, what are you saying here? Because Mm -hmm. it's sort of like I'm being like a descriptive writer, but it makes things actually like unclear. So Mm -hmm. anyway, part of my question mark is the way he wrote writes this story. It's unclear to me if the driver of the Lincoln like hit a light pole and was like driving erratically because he was drunk because he's like talks about how he could like smell alcohol and but it's it's just not clearly written. So okay. anyway, he arrests this guy, asks the man for his license and registration, uh, or sorry, pulls over the guy, asks for his license and registration, and the guy says, "Oh, here's the other thing that's a little bit of a question mark to me. <laughs> Most people can't." verbatim quote dialogue that they had with another person from like 20 years ago but he has he has scenes and scenes and scenes of dialogue which isn't like it just makes it seem less credible to me because you don't remember the exact words that you're exchanging with people you know so what year was this uh this was 81 so there wouldn't have been like recording right like no it wasn't a thing like body cams or anything no well, like no other, like there wouldn't be like audio, right? No. Okay, yeah, then that that that's completely unreasonable to believe. That's I can't even. I think witness testimony about like exact dialogue wouldn't even be as credible. Credible like, a few recorded. weeks after, yeah, a yeah. case, let alone twenty. Forget it. Yeah. 
So, but the guy says, he says that the man says to him, never mind my license and registration, this should suffice for you, and hands him a card. And on the card, I think we've talked about these cards before. Oh, PBA well, card? I guess this is actually different because the card says, it's written on the card, to any officer, please extend every courtesy to my good, good friend, Miguel Sandrone, who is this man, in the event of any problem. And it's signed, Lieutenant Webster which is mm. the lieutenant that uh, Sanchez reports to. Okay, yeah. So essentially, he's handed this card with a message from his lieutenant that says, basically, give this guy a get-out-of-jail-free card. <laughs> he chooses to disregard that and arrests him. And that night in the precinct, Sanchez gets a phone call from a man who asks for Lieutenant Webster. Uh, uh, by the way, these are all pseudonyms. He chooses not to give the actual names of people in his autobiography. Okay. Sanchez reports that Lieutenant Webster is not in, and the man says, like, basically, like, well, maybe you can help me. And he introduces himself as Diego Sandrone, the brother of the man that Sanchez had arrested earlier in the day. Tells him, this wasn't supposed to happen, so I want to arrange his release and a guarantee that it doesn't happen again. <sighs> and says, I don't expect this to be free, so I can make you an offer. Not as good as the lieutenant, of course, because rank has its privileges, but enough for your needs. One hand washes another, after all. What would you prefer? Again, this just, it doesn't seem credible to me that you would remember that dialogue that clearly, but No, whatever. it sounds like Chicago, uh, when you're yeah. good to mama. <laughs> yes. Don't you know that this hand exactly. washes that one, too? Okay, I don't know why I did that like Ethel Merman. I loved it, because we just watched uh, Drag Race. Oh, that's right. Okay. So, and maybe at the beginning of the autobiography, San there, I missed something about Sanchez saying, like, dialogue is approximated or whatever. But uh, doubt it. San Sanchez asks, well, what are you giving the lieutenant? And Sandrone, the man on the line, says, quote, he likes Latina women. I introduce him to them. He likes to party. I see he is invited to parties. He likes to travel to the Dominican Republic and have fun. And my cousin has a travel agency that gives him favorable rates. Very favorable. I can arrange similar benefits for you, only not the travel. That's more expensive, of course. What do you say? So Sanchez, at this point, it realizes that his lieutenant is essentially receiving payments and sexual favors in exchange for protection and kind of looking the other way from this person and his associates committing illegal acts. Ugh, disgusting. So Sanchez immediately reports this to Internal Affairs. Hmm. They decide to wire Sanchez with a recording device with the supposed intent of gathering proof of his accusations. So Sanchez wired up, not in the sense of like having too much coffee, but actually wearing a wire, <laughs> returns to Miguel Sandron and has a conversation with him, kind of gets him to say everything that he said before on the recording and gets enough information to implicate the lieutenant as well as the captain of the precinct on charges of corruption. What Sanchez didn't realize, though, was that the people who he had talked to internal affairs and had wired him were friends with the oh, lieutenant that no. Sanchez had levied these accusations against. <sighs> and when they learned of his allegations, they had him transferred to another division and the entire internal affairs investigation was just swept under the rug. So that none of that ever seems to kind of like come to light again from what I could tell. On April 13th, 1982, Sanchez and his partner Herman Velez were in a neighborhood and saw—this is a moment where I'm like, I have to say, I 
do think Sanchez thinks he is acting with integrity in most of what he writes, but then he does things like says some homophobic things and also clearly engages in in some racial profiling because he says at this point, part of his story is like, we spotted a tall black man wearing a cowboy hat acting very suspiciously and just like follow him. (sighs) So He and his partner, Herman Velez, follow this quote-unquote suspicious man to a building where they follow him up to the fourth floor and essentially see a drug purchase happen. While they are sort of like hiding in the landing above the apartment where they're seeing this happen at like the doorway of the apartment, they see the man inside of the apartment holding a gun. So at this point, they decide to charge the apartment and arrest the people who are selling drugs, buying drugs, and holding weapons. So they see the gun, decide to charge the door, but first they radio for backup. They say, like, we've got a drug deal in process. We're about to make arrests. There's a gun. Send backup. Okay. So charge the door. They get folks in handcuffs. Backup and other sergeants arrive minutes later, according to Joe Sanchez's accounts, to assist in the arrests and to secure the scene. I say that because Sanchez and his partner were really only alone and engaged with that scene for a couple of minutes before other officers arrived. Okay. But this whole situation would turn out to be a setup to frame Sanchez. So a year later... Sanchez was framed by members of the police force with respect to that drug bust, claiming that he had stolen money and potentially other items from the scene. No charges were ever filed against Sanchez's partner, despite the fact that they were together the whole time. I was just going to say. is another kind of red flag that this is not accurate. Right. Is, is the supposition that Velez was in on it or just not the target? I I think just not the target. Like, I think it was just setting up Sanchez and Velez was there, but we're going to ignore this. Well, at least he wasn't collateral damage, I guess. Yeah. So Sanchez was indicted by a grand jury in Manhattan for one count of burglary in the first degree, one count of grand larceny in the first degree, one count of grand larceny in the second degree, five counts of grand larceny in the third degree, and one count of assault in the third degree. By the way... To qualify as grand larceny in the first degree, again, I'm not a lawyer, but Mm -hmm. from what I can tell, a person has to steal over a million dollars in money or property in order for it to be grand larceny. And the fact that he has one count in the first degree, a count in the second, and five in the third indicates to me that the allegations were that he had, like, stolen a ton of money or property or drugs or whatever. Yeah, probably all of the above. Yeah. So one of the problems with this is that the witnesses against Sanchez in the case were all the drug dealers that he and his partner had arrested in 1982, who were all facing charges of 30 to life for various incidents. And Sanchez, in, in, well, in all the reports, really, it comes out that these men who were testifying against Sanchez were promised by internal affairs to have their charges dropped if they agreed to testify against Sanchez. Of course. So this was a really lengthy trial, but ultimately Sanchez was exonerated of every single charge. Mm -hmm. But when you are brought up on, I think, 
felony charges as an officer, you are like suspended from service, I think is maybe the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. At least that's, I believe, how it's supposed to work. So when he was um, acquitted of all of his charges or exonerated, he ultimately applied for reinstatement as a police officer. So he was like, listen, all of this turned out to be not true. So reinstate me. Give me my job back. Why would you want to go back? (sighs) It's a great question. But this is not the end of his story. Due to a supposed error, his reinstatement paperwork was sent to two different Supreme Court justices one of whom ruled that he should be rehired and the other upheld his dismissal from the police and basically said like, no, he can't be an officer anymore. Hmm. So the case went before the appellate court of New York, which ultimately upheld his dismissal in part because at that time, only the New York City Police Department police commissioner had the authority to reinstate a police officer and could make that decision without any hearings. The police commissioner at the time, Benjamin Ward, decided not to allow the hearing and upheld Sanchez's dismissal because, quote, otherwise it would be to open a can of worms into how Sanchez had been falsely accused. So Benjamin Ward, like straight up said, we are not going to have any hearing on this case because if we do, then we're going to have to open up all of these questions about police corruption and improper actions. And that's going to be too much of a hassle and it's going to reflect badly on NYPD. So instead they just said, no, thanks. We'll just ignore the fact that you were acquitted of all of these corruption charges and ignore all the evidence that indicates that we have a bunch of corrupt officers, including some in internal affairs involved in this situation. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So like, Okay, I'll wait to the end. I have one like big question that that kind of brings me to. Okay, we're approaching the kind of conclusion of my notes, but Sanchez, so Sanchez was not given his job back and he ultimately never works with uh, the police department again. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does, you know, he still needs a job. So he works as both a security guard and a mailman and then applies to become a correctional officer and work in a prison. So he works in Sing Sing, which is a maximum security prison in Ossining, New York. And there, Sanchez came into contact with a lot of the people he had arrested as part of his work with the New York Police Department. While he was working in Sing Sing, he was assaulted by an inmate, and another tried to set him up on false allegations that Sanchez had mistreated him. So even in this different setting he still has these like issues of his time with nypd influencing his experience working as a correctional officer and so he transfers to another state prison and in this prison he sees two inmates fighting and goes to break it up and who it was like a a bloody attack like there was a knife he's rushing to try to inter- intervene between it to stop to break up the fight and sanchez during this during this altercation is brutally wounded nearly fatally and the other guards only come once the fight is over when sanchez is like nearly fatally wounded so it's kind of this question mark of like was this him being set up yet again Mm-hmm. He recovers, though. He makes a full recovery. And after this, he decides to retire t- with his family in Florida. 
uh, though he does still work with various police-related organizations. So just to recap, during his tenure with NYPD, he was double-crossed by internal affairs, double-crossed again by being set up for these burglary and grand larceny charges with the coerced false testimony of these local drug dealers, and his bid for reinstatement was denied due to the concern that it would, you know, reflect badly on the police department. In 2013, the citizen journalist who I mentioned interviewed one of the jurors during Sanchez's uh, 1985 trial, and this juror, whose name is Annabelle Washburn, she claims that uh, Sanchez was just, like, super fucked over by the NYPD, and she actually did a lot of work writing letters to various officials in New York trying to get him reinstated and to kind of clear his name because of what she saw during her time serving on the jury. So she wrote to the Brooklyn district attorney, she wrote to the state prosecutor, uh, she wrote to the judge who presided over the trial, she wrote to the police commissioner, and ultimately, of course, you know, these were... Ignored, denied. Ignored, you know, not successful attempts. But I do think it, again, speaks to Sanchez's credibility in Mm -hmm. the fact that one of these jurors was like, wow, this is so fucked up. Now that my service to this case is done, I... I have to take action to try to help this man get his life back. Yeah. So Sanchez went on to become a published author. As I mentioned, I read his autobiography, True Blue, and he has written several other books about policing and police corruption with a co-author named Mo Danya. But I just wanted to conclude with this quote that he says, In his autobiography, he says, What I tell young cops I come in contact with, they have one of the greatest jobs in the world, and to stay honest, for once you lose a job for being dishonest, it will stay with you until you die. So, as I said, there isn't a lot of reporting or documentation that I was able to find that kind of tells the NYPD side of the story, but I think it's really, obviously... We've heard stories of, you know, police corruption and and all of that and how it really is is kind of dangerous and complicated for officers to kind of question the system because they get pushed out. They get, you know, in some cases killed, they get transferred, the case gets buried, they just get intimidated to not testify. So I think that whenever we hear these cases of police corruption, it's really important for us to think about kind of this question of like who polices the police and not to say policing generally is the right framework but how how are they held accountable and is that system working and you know maybe sometimes it is and we only hear the cases of when it's not but I think that when we are having conversations about how we need to reform policing that also really has to include the accountability structures for whatever kind of alternative justice system we're proposing that are set up in ways that don't allow for that kind of corruption to happen, right? Like the internal affairs should be totally independent of policing. And I think that's sort of the like nudge, nudge, wink, wink intent, even though it's not really happening. Mm -hmm. So, and that can, of course, lead to all kinds of cases like this happening. So that was the story of Joe Sanchez that inspired this final episode of season one of Law and Order, The Blue Wall. Wow, that was really, really comprehensive and really well done. I'm like blown away that you were able to read a autobiography with how 
slow I read. Well, here's so. why. I started researching this case a couple weeks ago because oh, okay. I was like, I wanted to make sure I had stuff to work off of. And mm-hmm. then the more I researched, the more I was like, mm, this is only kind of telling one side of the story. So I like did a lot of work to try to find sources. And mm-hmm. so that's why I kind of read an autobiography and listened to a podcast that I wouldn't normally have done as part of research for one of these cases. Mm, it definitely paid off. It was really, really good. Thank you. Of course. My my two things, I guess. My one thing about what I was going to ask earlier is, and I guess we don't know, but based on his difficulty getting on the armed forces and then on the you know police force to begin with, yeah. do is there a school of thought or does he believe that he was never meant to be on the force or in this world at Mm. all? And that's why he was repeatedly targeted or is it like, you know, once he was on the force, he just got a bad reputation. Like, did they know when he got on the force that this guy's tried multiple times, he's tried to be in the military, he's tried this, that, and the other thing. And he's just like striking out all the time. And then automatically they're like, Oh, we don't like this guy. I, I don't think know. so he doesn't in his autobiography he doesn't really like connect necessarily the dots of I tried really hard to get in and it took forever with this and, and it, that directly resulted in how I was treated by my fellow police officers he doesn't quite make that connection but does really call into question the integrity of a lot of uh, police officers and police bodies in New York and talks about like racism and things like that because he is from Puerto Rico and Mm -hmm. uh, talks about, you know, offensive things people would say and the way they would treat him and treat other Latino officers um, and other Latinx officers. And so I, I, I don't think he says this resulted in that, but he really... It's really funny to me. He clearly so much wanted to be a police officer even after all of this. And in my mind, if I had gone through that, I would be like, this system is so broken. I have no interest in being a part of it. But he clearly really thought this system is broken. It needs people like me who have integrity and want to do this job out of the right reasons on the force. Right. And like, if you believe that policing positively contributes to reform and lowers crime and all of that, then it logically makes sense to want to be a police officer. I don't personally hold that belief. So I I don't think that that uh, I think that kind of explains why I would make different choices. But it's it's he really does talk a lot in his autobiography about how not he doesn't really talk about how broken the system is. He really paints this as the work of bad actors, right? Like corrupt individual officers, not problems with policing and with the criminal justice system, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I guess that makes knowing that that would explain why he would want to go back on the force because of that belief, because if he believed that the reason everything has happened was because of inherent problems within the system, he would possibly look into ways to reform the system or to change things within the system rather than just being a beacon of light that is a part of it yes well that that was one thing and then the other thing i could understand just like you were saying why people out there who i don't want to say triggered but like people out there who don't like 
hearing the phrase defund the police or don't oh, yeah. like hearing that sort of any movement in that direction. I feel like I understand why there's an opposition to that sure like, phrase and such because before I really understood what it really meant and what I before I understood a lot about roots of the police force and what they're really how they started and what they're here yeah, for yeah. and all that and all these these other alternative um options until i heard all that i would have been like oh well you know what's the we need police right we We just just have some bad officers and we got to figure out how to get you know that taken care of yeah and so thinking that way as i think the you know i could just guess like the average american might think maybe sure yeah um i can understand why it's like oh my god this is like crazy like what that's going to be hysteria and everyone's blaming everything on the police and i know a police officer and my my dad's a police officer whatever like i get that but it's it's i think it's a lack of understanding of like what everyone's really talking about when you say defund the police and i think right right defund the police isn't like we want a free-for-all and we want everybody to be able to commit whatever crimes they want it's we want people to be held accountable for the things they do in ways that actually repair the harm and correct whatever issues cause that crime, whether it's individual or sort of systemic, right? Like, that's what defunding the police is, is saying, let's put into place a system that holds people accountable for the actions that we deem inappropriate, but in a way that actually prevents those things from happening again in the future, whether that's helping this person to understand the impacts of their actions or drug rehabilitation clinics or things like that and not just putting people in a cell, right? Because again, I think I said this a minute ago, if you believe that our prison system reforms people, Mm. then it makes sense to want to be a police officer and to believe that police officers are essential and good elements of our society. But evidence continues to mount for decades Mm -hmm. that our prison system in no way reforms people it only punishes them and so we need to change that because essentially what we then have is a policing system that just punishes people and doesn't do anything to actually change the issues that we quote-unquote care about as a society which are crime and violence exactly and many of the ways these people are punished are the the sources of why they got themselves arrested maybe sure like the the conditions that led them to committing any crime are they're exacerbated by being put through the prison system right exactly a lot of people like (laughs) a lot of people commit acts of crime to survive and then if you are arrested for those, put through our prison system, and then you have a criminal record, it's even harder to survive. But there's there it's been done other places. It can things can change. You know, there is a way. It doesn't oh, seem yeah. like there is, because it's all we know, but there is there are alternatives. And something I would really love to do, Matt, that I I'm wondering if you would be interested in joining me in this and seeing like I, I would love to do a sort of special episode where we interview somebody who is truly an expert on like police reform or defunding the police and prison abolition who could really speak to or give really informed answers about a lot of the questions. I would love that. I I would love, maybe you were just about to say this. I hate to interrupt if you were, but I was going to say, I would love to have like, if we decide to do that, a kind of list of questions, maybe commonly asked questions, or maybe we can ask listeners right now. 
if you have any questions about the idea of defunding the police, or you could probably speak about it a little bit more than I would, but, you know, essentially asking listeners to, to ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. I would, if you are, so two things, one, if you are, or if you know somebody who is a true expert on those topics, who would be open to being on our podcast and being interviewed, please send us an email to put us in touch with that person. And if that's not you and you don't know somebody, but you have questions or you're like, <laughs> shut up about this, you know, defunding the police thing, like that's never going to work. What about this? Like, you know, send us those questions as well, because, uh, you know, I think that there are a lot, there's a lot of lack of information and lack of awareness out there about how something like how an alternative to our current policing and criminal justice system could look. And so if you have questions about that and you would like us to ask specific questions of an expert on that topic, uh, send those to us. Yeah, I would love that. I think it's better to have conversations and things like that because so often, yes, even myself who I, you know, I'm interested in these kinds of things and learning about them, but even myself, sometimes I read a, I don't know, something someone shared on Instagram story or like a one blurb or like a headline or you know whatever and i think oh okay i got it yes or like oh that's interesting maybe i'll look at it later but then i don't and then it just exists in my mind as like a fact <laughs> or like a thing i read someplace or what yes. whatnot and i think that that yes. happens to probably a lot of us yeah. especially right now with everybody oh totally you know, which is great yeah. everybody sharing all this information and keeping stories out in the media that haven't been and and all of that but it does it does lead to a lot of misinformation, a lot of questions being raised and not answered. So for sure. I love that idea that we'd be able to have a conversation yes. about it. And I would love for, again, all listeners to to get in on that conversation because I don't know a ton about it myself until very, very recently. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I I also will say that police and prison abolition are things that I have known about for a while, but only recently have started to like do more research on and learn more about. And the more I learn about it, the more and more that it makes sense and is like shown by evidence to be a better choice than what we are doing at the moment. But I still have a lot of questions mm -hmm. about like logistics and how could things work and what, you know, what would that look like? What you tell us the story of communities who have done that, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, like there, I saw a headline the other day, we live in Santa Barbara and I just saw a news article that either Santa Barbara or Goleta, the kind of uh, suburbs of Santa Barbara, just put into place a restorative justice program for like lower level offenses to prevent people from going through the criminal justice system and developing a record and all of that. And those are the kinds of programs that are shown to be effective. And so I have hope because I see more and more communities doing that kind of thing. But I think the more that people have an awareness of that and sort of a knowledge about how it would work, then the more likely it is that things like that will be able to happen and will actually be able to build communities that don't disproportionately police low-income communities of color, cause the disproportionate deaths of people of color, queer people, trans people. So I, I'm really interested in seeing that happen. And I would, I would love to have a conversation with somebody about that and share that conversation with all of our listeners. So um, again, if you know somebody who you think would be perfect to talk to about that, send us their name. Um, or if you are that person, please get in touch. We would love to have you on the podcast. Yeah, that would be awesome. I would love to have episodes like that about other topics too. I know we've, we've talked about yeah. that idea, but I, I think that would be great because I would love to be 
educated on a lot of these things. I've throughout, I mean, this is a good time to say this since it's the last episode of the season, but I've really learned so much more about yeah. the world around me and people and the even just the world of true crime in general and all yeah. of this kind of stuff. I've really, I've always been interested in true crime. I've always been like a huge, uh, I don't know what you want to say, like absorber of the media <laughs> around true crime. You know, mm -hmm. I, I love yeah. TV procedurals. I love documentaries and I love hearing about things that happen in the world and why and human nature -y type things. It's right into my like wheelhouse of what I'm interested in. But throughout yeah. doing this podcast and doing some deeper research on some of, I mean, deeper research, I should say, if you've listened to the show, you know, it's not like super deep re <laughs> research, <laughs> but you know, a lot, a lot more comprehensive and looking up multiple articles and getting multiple points of view about things. And yeah, it's, and I mean, yeah. it couldn't have happened at a more timely, it couldn't be more that's timely. That's essentially what I'm trying to say. Like the state of awareness and the way information is spread right now currently in the world in the country i guess i should yeah. say is so different than it was when this show was on when i was like mm -hmm. five years younger even so it's yeah like the perfect time for me to be really um understanding a lot more about other people and about myself i've had to face a lot of hard truths about myself I've had to look at a lot of yeah. like jokes I've made in the past with good friends and ways I've looked at people and assumptions practices I've yeah. had and oh my god assumptions for sure. I mean I've it's been really really just a beautiful experience for me having the opportunity to be a part of this podcast, a part of this community doing this with you. It's been really great. So Aww. um yeah, this has been so such a great season. What a beautiful way to end our first season. <laughs> I mean it. It's been really eye-opening. I've I've really come to a lot of positive so much positive growth from this and I Yay. just feel way more confident about talking about a lot of these topics. I'm, you know, I can be self-conscious about my I don't have a degree, you know, from school past like a associate's degree. Yeah, doesn't matter. And it's <laughs> Yeah, but I know that I know that, but you don't always feel that way when you're surrounded oh, sure. by people talking about certain things, especially when you're surrounded by a lot of people who have academic prowess. You know, there's a when you don't have a degree and you're aware of it, sure, and other people are aware of it, and you're around a lot of academic folk. You, oh yeah, it, there's a vibe you get for sure. I've been there for sure. Yeah, and I just feel this has like grown my confidence, and I hope the people listening out there, if there's any topics we've covered that you were feeling sort of unsure about or iffy about, I hope we were able to like provide some more context to help you move that needle in either direction, yeah. you know? So Matt, what would you rate the episode? I would rate the episode, I found it very enjoyable for the most part, that there were some good twists and turns and, you know, unexpected whatever's gotcha moments. <laughs> I would give it an entertainment value of like a B. Okay. Um, and then how it dealt with the topic. I guess we're going to just think about the topic of police corruption. Yeah. I guess, I think it did pretty well. The only I reason know. I don't agree, like, I, I think it kind of showed, like, the workings of police investigations pretty well. But, again, one of the things to, like, be aware of with any kind of TV show like Law & Order is it often shows the justice system working as we all hope it will work. When mm -hmm. And it doesn't sh often show like the failings of it. And so like Joe Sanchez's case, obviously a very, very different outcome, like justice, presuming all the facts that I presented 
or evidence I presented are accurate, you know, the justice system did not work in that case, in Joe Sanchez's yeah. case. And so I think it's, imp- I'm going to rate it for like how it dealt with it as like a C minus okay. because a lot of things, a lot of episodes of Law and Order are like, well, we got the bad guy. We did it right in the end. The justice system prevails. And, <sighs> you know, that's not necessarily accurate. And so that's why I'm going to give it kind of a C minus for that. But but okay. I think that I'd give everything it a, else was... I'd give it a B minus, I think, okay. for similar reasons. I am also going to give it, I'll give it a B, I'll give it a B for watchability. You know, for a season finale, it was a kind of twist on the, like the case involved them instead of just being something they were investigating. So I thought it was a, a mildly entertaining twist on the typical format that felt like a good end to the first season. Yeah, and I felt like we got like a little character development from yeah. um, Cragen. We yeah. haven't really seen any of that all season, so. Yeah. If you would like to help us grow, the very best thing you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you are listening to our episodes. Yes, it would be so, so helpful. And another thing that would be really great, if, if you could reach out to any of your friends, anyone you know out there, anyone you connect to on social media that you think would be interested in what we're doing. Um, word of mouth is the hugest way we get our, our show found. So yes. please, please tell anyone you know over social media or, you know, t- t- call them up. Yeah. <laughs> our social media is Ripped Headlines on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can email us at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. As I mentioned, we would love to have some folks on uh, for interviews. And we also just love getting email from people. So feel free to say a note to say hi. Yeah. And speaking of Ripped Headlines Pod, that is our new website. So check out rippedheadlinespod.com. And you can find more information about us, about our show. Uh, We'll be posting about future merchandise. We'll be putting recommendations up there. We'll give you information about Anything to come. We've got a lot of exciting ideas, maybe a newsletter. Um, We've got a YouTube channel probably launched. So check out our website and see what's coming up. We also are planning a Patreon in the near future. So if you have any suggestions of what you'd like to see on there, feel free to tell us. Yeah. And one thing we're really, really like excited about trying out is like we were talking about a little earlier, having episodes where we do have guests and we talk about certain topics we'd also love to just collaborate with other podcasts out there of similar or other topics that might just be interesting to us so if you know another podcast or you have a podcast um, or youtube channel or whatever and you'd be interested in collaborating with us just because you like us it doesn't have to be true crime it doesn't have to be law and order we are uh very very open so connect with us or connect us to to other podcasters out there yeah thank you so much everyone for listening to our full first season if you haven't listened to it all go back and find our old episodes and remember listen to rip from the headlines where you get all the facts and some fiction we are just going to take one week off between season one and season two so we will see you the week after next and until then stay out of the headlines Bye bye bye